If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to 1 Thessalonians. And if you don't uh, have your own Bible and you're sitting in one of these gray seats in front of you underneath the seats, um, there are Bibles uh, under there. They should be under most of the seats, and uh, you can uh, use that Bible. This morning, I believe it's found on page 986. So if you're uh, not familiar with working your way through a biblical text, uh, you can find it there. It's a... uh, Great passage of Scripture, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. So let's read it together and then uh, take a few minutes and uh, consider God's Word this morning. Starting at verse 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything." For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait from his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's that last verse in particular that we'll be spending a bit of time on this morning, verse 10, where Paul writes, one of the responses to those who put their trust in God was to wait for his Son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you today and we acknowledge your work throughout history and throughout the church. We know, Father, that it was you that gave your apostles singular gifts of the Holy Spirit so that as they proclaimed your word, they did so with power. I pray even this morning that you would grant me as I prepare to minister and to teach your word the same spirit of wisdom, love, and power that the truth that you gave me to declare might search the conscience, convince the mind, and win the hearts of those who hear it. And that the glory of your kingdom, your great kingdom, will advance a little bit today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the challenges of pastors and preachers, I guess, is not to make things that are simple complicated. And so I hope this morning that um, what I say will be simple and will remain simple. I was thinking last night as I was um, sitting out in the hot tub, which I love to do late at night, that one of the most common questions that I get asked as a pastor, and I've probably been asked it hundreds of times, is along the lines of what happens 
when somebody dies. Or somebody might say, well, where do they go when they die? Or sometimes people will say to me with great confidence, and it's hard to always know what to respond, but they'll say with great confidence as we're gathered around a hospital bed or a home after somebody has passed away, well, I know that my loved one is in heaven. They're difficult conversations. On the one hand, it should be very simple to be able to answer somebody, well, this is how one knows where they'll go when they die, and this is how one knows if they're in heaven. But it's not always that simple. Sometimes it's complicated. I think what I do know um, with great confidence is that our destiny, our eternal destiny of whether where we go when we die and whether we go to heaven or not, is wrapped up in Christ. And that there is no other way to approach that question but to approach that question with what is one's connection with Christ. The answer to all of these eternal questions, I find, are found in one's conviction, in one's connection with Jesus Christ. And that's why I love this chapter of Thessalonians. In fact, it is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And I like it because it really talks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It talks about the balance between God's work in us and our response to the gospel and to the words that are being proclaimed. It talks to us about what a life changed by the gospel looks like. And I like that. It, it helps me understand that. It helps me identify with that. And in fact, Paul would say at the very end of this, he says, your guys' faith, it's just, it's just sounding forth all over Asia. The transformation that is taking place in you is absolutely stunning. And as he wraps it up, he, he wraps it around two final sort of points to them. And he talks about how they turned from idols to God to serve the living and true God. That's the first thing he states, that there has been a, a real change in their loyalty, a real change in the person that they put their trust in, the way that they spend the money, the way that they talk, the way that they live their life. And they used to serve idols, and there's so many idols in the world around us. They used to serve idols, but as they came to know Christ, they started now to serve the living and true God. That was one mark of how you know your life is wrapped up in Jesus, is that you begin to serve Him and you begin to live for Him. But the second thing, and that's where I want to spend our time this morning, is that he says there that you also now wait for His Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want to just ask three questions this morning. And I hope that it stays simple. The three questions are, where is Jesus now? How did Jesus get there? And what did the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplish? You'll notice, I hope, that it is framed in the past, the present, and the future. Where is Jesus right now? How did He get there refers to the past. And what benefit does He give us in the future? And so those are the three questions that we're going to look at this morning. The first is simply, where is Jesus now? And He says in verse 10, quite plainly, and that you are now those who are waiting for His Son from heaven. Jesus is in heaven. Not some mysterious place. Not some uh, ethereal place. He hasn't disappeared, never to be seen of again. He is in a very real place. It is a place that we call heaven. 
It's a place that's described in so many different ways from so many different angles. It's demonstrated and illustrated to us through different accounts in the Bible. One of them is simply Jesus as he has just finished his time on earth. It says that he led his disciples out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands towards them, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He just went up into heaven. That speaks volumes to me because it tells me at the very least, Jesus is not nowhere. Jesus is somewhere. Jesus is not in a state of non-existence. Jesus is existing now in a place. His body is not undergoing decay somewhere as all of our bodies will when we die and we are in the ground long enough. Jesus is now very really alive in a very real place called heaven. The Bible tells us that he gets there through his ascension. Ascension is not language we use very commonly anymore today, but don't let the word confuse you. It's, it's not part of our regular language, but we can understand it this way. If you have a two-story house, you go from floor one to floor two, we say they went upstairs. We might say to Jesus, he simply went upstairs. He's gone from earth to heaven. If you want to take the vision of Jacob's ladder, you could say he went up the ladder into heaven. And it says that when we talk about Jesus then, we know that he is the one who has gone into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Again, this is not pie in the sky kind of thinking. It's not a wistful hope on, on the part of those who believe in Jesus Christ. We find it all through the scriptures. One of the ways that we know as Christians that Jesus has gone to heaven is because of the evidence within us. And you say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, when you become a follower of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit that comes to live in us. And the Holy Spirit comes to live in us because Jesus is in heaven. And you say, well, what's the connection? Well, the Bible says, and I think Barry read it, when Jesus went up into heaven, one of the things that he did was when he got there, he sent the Holy Spirit to come and live in us so that we wouldn't be alone. And so I know that Jesus is in heaven because his Holy Spirit lives in me today. And Jesus sent him into me when he went into heaven. Jesus himself had this great confidence about his comings and his going. He says in one place, he says, I am going to the Father. And you might ask, well, where is the Father? Well, what's the Lord's Prayer that we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And so Jesus, by simply saying that, says, I am going to my Father in heaven. Jesus talked about it to the thief on the cross. Some of you may have read that portion of Scripture on your own this past week as he was uh, dying on the cross, and one of the thieves turned to him and said, Lord, remember me today. And Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus clearly knew where he was going, and he invited the thief to come along and be with him there. We know that there were witnesses to Jesus being taken up into heaven. As he was on his last day with a group of his disciples, they went out after a time of prayer together. And uh, as he was going up into heaven, as he was being taken up, as he was walking up into heaven, however you want to term it, uh, some angels came and they spoke to the men who were watching. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him go. And so there was eyewitnesses to Jesus leaving this earth and going up into the skies into heaven. The Bible tells us also what Jesus is doing in heaven. And it helps us maybe just solidify this truth that this is where he is. Jesus said in one place, and it's a scripture that we often use to comfort one another, particularly at the time of loss or mourning. 
Jesus says to his disciples as he's getting ready to go to heaven, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. It's a wonderful reminder that Jesus is preparing a place for all those who put their faith in him that one day we can go and be with him where he is in heaven. And so Jesus is in heaven right now preparing a place for all who trust in him. Another thing Jesus is doing in heaven is he's praying for us. I don't know if you think about that. Every time I I, I think about that, it's very amazing to me. that I am glad when people pray for me. I am astounded to think that Jesus prays for me. That he cares enough about me, that he knows enough about me, that he's concerned enough about me, that he cares what I do, where I go, what I say, what happens in my life, that he prays for me. And we find this in Hebrews, uh, in a number of places it says, For Christ has entered not into a holy place made with hands, which are the copies of true things, in other words, he's entered in heaven, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Isn't that astounding? That Jesus right now is in the presence of God praying for us. He's there on our behalf. In another place, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession means pray. And so Jesus is preparing a place for us, and he's praying for us in heaven. And our, our stance then, our response is to be as these first Christians in Thessalonians. It says that they waited for the Son from heaven. They knew he was coming back. They anticipated his return. And so we too are described as those who have a citizenship in heaven. And we wait, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So where is God's Son right now? Where is the risen Jesus right now? He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Now you think, well, how did he get there? It might not be as easy as we think. And some might be skeptical and wonder if he's even there at all. But Paul goes on to say how he got there. He says that you are waiting for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. Now we're going into the past. Presently, right now, Jesus is in heaven. How did he get there? Because in the past, after he had died, God raised him from the dead. That is a profound six words that is echoed through the pages of the Bibles uh, all over the place. God raised him from the dead. It's important for us to not be fooled or to think that Jesus didn't really die. It really is not a, I think, a rational, rational or reasonable way to think any longer. There has been so much written, there is so much proof, uh, internal proof in the Bible, external proof in the world around, just of all the events that is agreed on by both uh, secular people who don't know anything about Christ and those who do, that in fact Jesus was dead. It wasn't a fainting spell. It wasn't a case of a mistaken identity. There wasn't a swapping of bodies that took place and that his body was replaced with somebody else and then he was revived by his disciples and then appeared to them in other places. 
the evidence for the death of Christ is insurmountable. The predictions of his death are all through the Old Testament. The events leading up to his death are recorded in the scriptures and outside of the scriptures. The way he died, the assurance that he was dead, the witnesses to his death, the guards around his tomb. There is just too much evidence that establishes the fact that Jesus was dead. But there is just as much evidence that establishes the fact that the tomb was empty. That after he died, he was placed in a tomb. And that tomb was empty. Why was it empty? Well, ultimately, because God raised him from the dead. This is the testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses. Paul says over 500 people, most of them are still living, when he wrote in, or in Acts, he says most of them still living have seen him. It's the testimony of the apostles who saw their Lord. It's the witness of their record as they write in the scriptures, this Jesus, they said, God raised up. The rulers and religious leaders and crowds of people killed the author of life, but God raised him up. David carried out uh, God's purpose while he lived, and then he died. He was buried with his people, and the scripture says his body rotted away. But the one whom God raised up by, from the dead did not rot away. The Bible witnessed it consistent. It was by means of the incredible power of God, by the one who has power over life and death, that God raised up our Lord from the dead. And you know the astounding thing? That that same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us who are in Christ from the dead. I think we need to think about this a little bit then. This raising up Jesus from the dead is no small feat. I don't know if there's anyone here who thinks you can raise somebody from the dead. I don't know if you have the power, if you have the skill. If, I don't know anybody in the world that has that kind of power, that kind of ability. But the Bible tells us that God raid, raised Jesus from the dead. And it's a little bit more complicated than just thinking about physical death. Because the Bible tells us very clearly why we die. There might be a lot of secondary reasons why we die, and and those will be marked on our birth certificate. But the primary reason one dies is because of sin. The Bible is so clear about that. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual death and physical death are the consequence of our sin against God. And just for clarification, sometimes we don't always know what sin is. It, it's described in the Bible in a number of different One is rebellion. It is simply saying to God, I don't want your rule in my life. I don't want your way for my life. I'm going to do my own thing my way. Sometimes sin is described as transgressing. That simply means going outside the boundaries that God has set for us. I've described it in our congregation uh, many times as those who say go skiing and they go out of bounds. They go outside the boundaries. Well, that is what sin is also. It is going outside of the boundaries that God has set. Another place the Bible describes sin by a word that says we miss the mark or we fall short of what God expects for us. So it says the wages of rebellion, the wages of transgression, the wages of falling short, the wages of missing the mark is death. In Adam, the Bible says we all die. And so sin is the great plague of mankind. Death has the power over all mankind because every Man, woman, boy, and girl has sinned. And we have all sinned in Adam. 
So for death to be defeated, do you understand this? For death to be defeated, sin had to be defeated. That's the only way death can be conquered. That's the only way the sting of death can be removed, is if the cause of death is dealt with. And that is sin. But it's fascinating, Jesus was sinless. The Bible tells us that he is the sinless Lamb of God. It tells us he never sinned nor deceived anyone. He was tempted in every way uh, that a human being can be tempted, and yet he is without sin. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The grave couldn't hold him, though, because he was sinless. So as you put this together, if the wages of sin is death, and Jesus uh, was without sin, then why did he die? And this is where the amazing transaction, I think, of Easter and of this whole weekend, Good Friday, begins to come together. And this is the whole language of, of Christ dying in our place, of Christ doing for us what we couldn't do. He didn't die because of his own sin. He died in our place. He bore our sin. There's four words, and I know they're big words, um, and they're complicated words, and, and, and they're words that we could spend a couple hours each on thinking about and talking about them, but they help, I think, maybe get a little bit of context of why Jesus died. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God took the place of those of us who were rebellious, transgressors, missed the mark of God for our lives. Well, he died because there was a need to deal with God's anger towards sinners. There's a word in the Bible, and it's called propitiation. And that simply means that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, God, the holy God, the just God, is angry at us and our sin. And so Jesus died in our place. He bore that wrath that was intended for us in himself. Another word that's used in the Bible is justification. It's another big word, but I think what it means is, is in, in, a, in a nutshell, is a judgment of God in respect to us, in that fact God says of us, because of what Jesus did for us, that we are righteous. It's a declaration. It's a unilateral statement by God that all who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ are perfect. Christ died, so that declaration could be made over all who put their trust in him. A third word is redemption. What we don't understand is that every, when, when we sin, we become um, slaves. Or maybe another way of putting it is we are kidnapped by the dark side. And most of us are familiar that the, the vast majority of times when you see a kidnap story or a movie about kidnapping or a book about kidnapping, in order for the kidnapped person to be rele released, there's a ransom that's paid. And once that ransom is paid, then the release is made. In the same way, all of us who have sinned, we are kidnapped by the dark side. And there is a ransom that is on us. And that ransom can only be met by perfect righteousness. And that ransom has been paid by Christ. He is called the one who redeems us. He buys us back. He pays for our freedom. And then the third or the fourth word 
again, which helps us understand why Christ died. The perfect Son of God who died for sinners is reconciliation. And that's a need that has arisen in us because because of our sin, we have become estranged or alienated from God. I think we all understand that concept. If you're married or you have a good friend or you might work for your boss or it might be in relationship with your parents, that, that I, I don't know of any relationship that is perfect. And so every once in a while, you, you hit tension in the relationship. And often when you hit that tension, eye contact becomes really difficult. Conversation becomes stilted. Sometimes one of you goes to one part of the house and the other goes to the other part of the house. And there's just a tension. There's a hostility. There's an enmity because you're at odds with one another. That's how we are with God. It's just this awkwardness, this uncomfortableness, because we know we've offended God. We feel it. We see it. And we don't want to look Him in the face. And we don't want to talk to Him. We, don't want, we want to avoid Him. But we want to have a relationship with Him. And Jesus, through His death, reconciles us to God. He takes away that barrier he takes away that hostility. He makes, it, he, he makes the path clear for us back to God. And so these are some of the reasons why God, why Christ died for us. God took all of our sin, our rebellion, our transgression, and he put it on Christ, the perfect Son of God. And Christ died in our place. He bore our penalty. He endured our punishment. The Lord laid on him, the scripture says, the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, or he has put on him our grief. Because the wages of sin is death, the only hope that we had is that Jesus, who was perfect, would die in our place. Jesus defeated death and the power of sin because of his perfection. And so... God raised him from the dead. Death could not hold him. The penalty was paid. The curse was born. The debt was carried. God's wrath was satisfied. And so God raised him from the dead. That is the amazing thing. When you understand it, by God raising him from the dead, God is making a statement. And his statement is this. I have accepted the sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the world. I have accepted his substitution that he has taken your place and, he has, and, and you have taken his place. And by God raising him from the dead, he is saying, it is done. It is finished. And in that act of resurrection, Romans tells us that he was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Just a little sidebar. It's a, it's a couple of minutes, but it's a little sidebar. What's involved in, then, in putting your trust in Jesus Christ? There's a scripture verse that says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the heart of Good Friday and Easter. I don't know if you noticed when I read this text. In the first part of verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven. That is a reference to the deity of Christ. This is one of the amazing things of Scripture, that, that when we think about Jesus Christ, first of all, we need to think of him as God's Son. He was God. But then it says at the end of this verse that it is Jesus who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. That's a reference to the humanity of Jesus. And so we would say, and the church and the Bible would describe Jesus as being one person with two natures. He is 100% God and 100% man without any mixing of those two natures. And so when we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we confess that even though we might not understand that I've been a believer or follower of Jesus for about 35, 30 years, 35 years, I don't know, somewhere around there, and I still can't wrap my head around that incredible mystery. But I know that that incredible mystery is absolutely essential for my salvation. Jesus had to be a man. I hope you understand that, that Jesus had to be a man. He had to be a man in order to fully identify with us in our humanity. He, he couldn't be some sort of spirit. He, he couldn't be some sort of superhuman being. He had to be like you and I in every way except without sin. And that's how the Bible describes him, as having flesh and blood. And because he had flesh and blood like you and I, there is not a thing that you and I experienced that Christ didn't experience. There's not a temptation that mankind doesn't experience that Christ doesn't experience. The Bible tells us that he was born of a woman, that he grew, he trusted, he felt, he cried, he suffered, he was tempted. He knows what it's like to live in a body. He knows what it's like to live in this world. He knows what it's like to live this air. He knows what it's like to live in complete, perfect obedience to God in a human body. And so we are all without excuse. But it's because Christ was, as a man, fully like us and yet fully obedient and perfect to God, that then God can take His perfection as a human being and give it to us who are sinful. And He can take our sin and our imperfection and He can put it on His Son. It's so critical that we understand that Jesus was fully human. Because our salvation is wrapped up in the humanity of Jesus. In His life, death, suffering, obedience. But it's also equally true that unless Christ was God, we wouldn't be here today. Because it is necessary for Jesus to be God in order to bear the weight of the sins of the whole world. And that's what the Bible describes. It's necessary that Jesus be God because only God could bear his punishment, which is staggering. That Jesus, as God or Christ, bore God's punishment upon himself for our sins. And because God's punishment is eternal, only Jesus Christ, who is God's Son, could bear the eternal punishment of God. And so you have to have those two things together in order to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, what it means to be a follower of Christ, the Bible says just confess in your heart and believe that Jesus is Lord. You just got to accept those two realities that God died in your place, but that Jesus lived a life like you and I live perfectly. And that is that perfect sacrifice of the God-man that makes it possible for you and I to have the hope of heaven. 
Because it was God who suffered on the cross, because it was God who bore our internal punishment, the death of Jesus then on the cross is sufficient for the sin of the whole world. And that song that we sung, which was such a beautiful song, or that the choir sung, it is finished. There's nothing we can do. And I, I wish I could get it into my head, and I wish I could help all of us here this morning understand this. You can't do anything to earn your salvation, and you don't have to do anything to receive salvation. It's all been done by the God-man, Jesus Christ. The whole penalty of our sin, the full extent of our curse, the full weight of the wrath of God has been borne by Christ. We simply trust in His sacrifice and have life everlasting. It's really quite amazing. The plan of God, the manifold wisdom of God in our salvation is beyond, it's just, it's stunning. It's complex and yet it's so simple. And so we read that we know where Jesus is right now. He's in heaven. We know how he got to heaven because in the past when he died, God raised him from the dead. And then we find out what his death and resurrection accomplished where it says Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, right now, Jesus is in heaven. He is in heaven because in the past God raised him from the dead. And this all matters because in the future God is coming back to judge the world and we are delivered from that judgment by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I really wrestle always when I talk about the wrath of God. It's not something that we want to hear a lot about. It's not something that we like to talk about. But it's everywhere in the Bible. The wrath of God is not some arbitrary, capricious act of emotional vengeance. It is the steady response of God to the rebellion of mankind towards his law and his rule. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. He is a holy God. And just as you and I live in a world when something happens to us, we expect justice. We expect righteousness. And even, even our own expectation of it is sometimes is so flawed, but there's just an expectation in us that something be made right, that it be fixed, that somebody be punished. Well, in the divine scheme of things, there is this also expectation that the perfection of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God will eventually be seen. And the Bible is very clear that each one of us here today, and in fact who has ever lived on this planet, will stand before God in the final judgment. And he will assess every single one of us according to our works. And since everything that a person has done will be disclosed accurately and fully, God's judgment will be in line with the truth of what's disclosed. It will fit the way things really are. There will not be one person who will, who will be able to claim or complain at the time of judgment that God is unfair, that they're being held to a standard that they didn't know, because God will assess each one of us according to what we knew and how we lived. What Paul is saying is this, because of the resurrection, there is a future hope for those who put their trust in Christ. 
Just as the coming of Christ is sure and certain, so is the judgment of God sure and certain. But the way that we face the judgment of God is not to stand before Him in our own righteousness, in our own good deeds, and say, look at me, I'm such a good person, and find that we fall woefully short of what God expected of us. The way we stand before God is in the resurrected power of Jesus Christ who has forgiven our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So for those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, confess Him to be the Christ and the Lord, they will escape God's anger and God's judgment. Paul says the same thing in another way a little bit later in this same letter. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in Him. I love that. God doesn't want us to stand under His judgment. He wants us to have freedom and hope because of Christ Jesus. Forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God are then based on both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our salvation is secured by the crucified and the risen Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and intercedes for believers based on his finished work on the cross. I love the anticipation of this group of people. They were waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. And they were waiting with full confidence that he would deliver them from the future wrath of God. So how do we respond to all of this? Three things. Short things. We respond with trembling. Do you really want to face the judgment of God on your own? Do you really want to stack up your life and all you have done, good or bad, up against all God's holy, righteous expectations. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There should be an expect or a, a certain amount of trembling as we consider God as our judge. But there can approach this whole reality with trust. And I pray that for many who maybe are trembling, that your trembling will lead you to trust in Jesus Christ. Because it says here that Jesus Christ is the one who delivers us from the judgment to come. It's a wonderful thing to put your hope in Jesus Christ, in God's Son. It's a wonderful thing to know that there's nothing you need to do, there's nothing you need to pay, uh, there's, there's no work that you need to contribute. You simply need to say, Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. I know that you died in my place. Make me one of God's children. And there's an amazing transaction that takes place and is that God applies the finished work of Christ to you through your faith in Jesus Christ. And then the final thing is with thanksgiving. After we believe in Him and receive His salvation, 
I think our hearts should be overflowed with a constant and continual gratitude. The psalmist says it well in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. And he goes on and he says why. He says, because He forgives all of our iniquities. He redeems my life from the pit. He doesn't deal with me according to my sins, nor repay me according to my iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love to those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our sin from us. As a father shows compassion to our children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. And so our hearts are full of thanksgiving for God who has delivered us in Christ Jesus from the judgment to come. And so... We live in great hope of the return of Christ. We have hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for God's power that is at work in us. And we live without fear because we know that our lives are wrapped up in Jesus.